So once again, good morning, and thank you so much for the invitation to be able to open God's word with you and to be able to worship with you. It's one of the joys that I have to be able to um, work for the denomination and as such visit and see what's happening in a variety of congregations. And so it's great to be here with you this morning. As was mentioned, I work for Faith Formation Ministries, and one of the big parts of my job is to walk alongside congregations as they learn to be intentional about supporting the faith formation from cradle to grave. And so some of the things we've been talking about um, lately is how do we encourage those who are in the third third of their life? I think, and maybe this isn't you, but I know in my own thought, uh, we often said, well, once you made profession of faith, you're kind of on your own. You know, find your own small group, make sure you're doing your devotions and Bible study. And we're realizing that at every age and stage of life, there are different things that are um, challenging us and different needs that we have. And so especially in the third third, when we're looking at the, how to end our lives well, end our lives in a way that um, blesses those around us, we've inviting, been inviting senior citizens in particular to say, what is it that you need to continue to grow until you hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant? on the other side of glory. So it's been a privilege. As was mentioned, I also work with a lot of young leaders. And so another part of what we're doing right now is inviting uh, young adults, emerging adults, and high school students into mentoring relationships. How do we help them build a resilient faith? And we're going to think about that today towards the end of this sermon. So how is it that we become a faith formative community together? And that we don't um, have this idea that once I've said yes to Jesus, I'm kind of on my own. So um, as we think about our scripture this morning, which comes from 2 Chronicles chapter 20, I want to tell the story of how we get there first. There need, there's a, and I didn't think you'd want to listen to three chapters of, of reading, but I want to tell you the story. And I want to encourage us, whether we're here in the sanctuary or you're at home, to be that kind of listener that sees this as a living, important story and not something that, was, that happened thousands of years ago that doesn't really matter today. Because if you were one of the first listeners, this story would have you at the edge of your seat. You'd be leaning forward and wondering, how is this going to end well? That's the kind of story this is. We're going to be introduced to King Jehoshaphat. That alone is exciting. I love to say that name, Jehoshaphat. He's the king of Judah. And we meet him in chapter 17 of 2 Chronicles. And this is what 17, chapter 17 starts with. It says, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, had strengthened himself against Israel. That's an important statement because it says that as the king of Judah... He is leading the people of Judah in a different direction than the king of Israel. The, many of the kings of Israel had turned their backs on God, but Judah is still following the way of the Lord. That scripture tells us that Jehoshaphat followed God's commands just like David. And we know from scripture and from the Psalms that David had a heart after God. He lived in cadence with God. He knew God's will. Even when he floundered, he knew God's will. He repented and followed the way of the Lord. That's a big name to be able to lay on top of Jehoshaphat. He was a king like David. 
He got rid of all the bales and the Asherah poles and the high altars. No one was going to follow anyone else in Judah but the Lord who created them. He had a heart that was devoted for the Lord. The fear of the Lord then fell on all the nations, all the kingdoms around Judah. And then there's this one little line that we need to pay attention to at the end of that chapter. Jehoshaphat became more powerful. Now, some of us might read that as saying, well, of course, you follow the way of the Lord and you're going to gain things. But that's not what the author is saying here. Jehoshaphat became more powerful. She made us sit even more forward in our chairs and ask the question, what is he going to do with that power? How is he going to live with that power? This is a foreshadowing of Jehoshaphat will have some choices to make as he moves ahead in his leadership. Then in chapter 18 and 19, something happens that makes us go, ah, we understand what he did with this power. What does he do? He becomes an ally through marriage to King Ahab. He marries one of King Ahab, the king of Israel, marries one of his daughters. Now, I know in this day and age, we always tell each other, we don't marry the family, we just marry the person. We also know that's not really true, is it? All of a sudden, our alliances, our allegiances may be stretched, and that's exactly what happens here. Jehoshaphat marries the daughter of Ahab, and now he has to decide, how am I going to relate to this king of Israel who does not have a heart for the Lord? Who does not follow the way of the Lord? As a matter of fact, Ahab surrounds himself with prophets of the Lord who actually are just yes men, who will tell Ahab exactly what he wants to hear. He's the exact opposite of Jehoshaphat. And guess what? Ahab is going to attest that allegiance, that alliance with Judah through the king Jehoshaphat. And Ahab says, guess what? I want to go to war. I want to show how mighty Israel is. And Jehoshaphat says, well, we've got, to, we've got to ask the prophets. Is this your will or is this God's will? And so Jehoshaphat calls all of his prophets, his yes men around, and they're like, oh, yeah, this is a great idea. Oh, you're going to be blessed. And Jehoshaphat says, is there no one here who speaks for the Lord? He sees that things are not quite as they were meant to be. Ahab says, well, there's one guy, Micaiah. But Micaiah, he always says terrible things about me. I don't like to listen to him. I don't want to invite him into this advice giving. But Jehoshaphat insists upon it. And Micaiah says, if you, Ahab, return alive after this war, you will know that you don't have to listen to any prophets. But if you do not return alive, you know that the word of the Lord is something you need to listen to and all the people need to listen to. Well, Ahab encourages Jehoshaphat to go to war with him. And Jehoshaphat says, okay, we'll go to war. But Ahab heard what Micaiah said. And Ahab is kind of a trickster. And he says to himself, self when we go to war, I've got to make sure I don't get killed because I do not want Micaiah to be right. I want all the other guys to be right. So he tells Jehoshaphat, when we go to war, let's wear our kingly robes so everyone knows who we are and who we represent. 
And then the trickster goes back and he wears the robes of the humble servant, the humble warrior. Meanwhile, Jehoshaphat is going out ready to represent everyone. Ahab thinks, well, nobody will recognize me. I'll be safe. I'll get out of this alive. Micaiah will be told that you don't represent the Lord and everything will be well. But the battle is the Lord's. And when Ahab is out there, a stray arrow hits him in one place where an arrow rarely ever gets through the armor and Ahab dies. Jehoshaphat goes back alive but now he realizes that he has participated in something other than what God wanted. And all the nations around Jehoshaphat are calling for Jehoshaphat's blood, calling for more war, saying, why you started this, we have no idea, but we want revenge. And that's where we find ourselves in chapter 20. The surrounding tribes have come to wage war on Jehoshaphat, and he proclaim, proclaims a day of fasting. So starting at verse 1, we're going to read through verse 19 on uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 20. After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites with some of the Maonites came to wage war against Jehoshaphat. Some people came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the Dead Sea. It is already in Hazeznan, Tamar, that is, En Gedi, and alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. Then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in front of the new courtyard and said, Lord, the God of our ancestors, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. Our God did not drive out, our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They have lived in it and built it in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, If calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before the temple that bears your name and will cry out to you in our distress. You will hear us and save us. But now here are men from Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whose territory you would not allow Israel to invade when they came from Egypt. So they turned away from them and did not destroy them. See how they are repaying us by coming to drive us out of the possession you gave us as an inheritance? Our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. All the men of Judah with their wives and children and little ones stood before the Lord. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Mataniah, a Levite, and a descendant of Asaph, as he stood in the assembly. This is what he said. Listen, King Jehoshaphat, and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of the vast army. 
for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, march down against them. They will be climbing up the pass of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the gorge in the desert of Jeruel. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your positions, stand firm, and see the deliverance of the Lord. The Lord will give it to you, Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out to face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. Jehoshaphat then bowed down with his face to the ground, and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down and worshiped before the Lord. Then some Levites from the Kothahites and the Korahites stood up and praised the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, if we were the first people listening to this story, not only would we be at the edge of our chairs, we'd probably be a little bit anxious right now. Because what are these people going to do? And I didn't even end the story with you. Aren't you wondering what happens? Don't you want to know how God shows that the battle is his? Here we leave the people praising the Lord, singing. It's actually as if they said, okay, praise team, come on out. And we're going to just sing praises to the Lord. And if some of you are like me, I'm an activator. I like to have a plan. I'd be, wait with the singing. What's the plan? What are we to do? And that's exactly the point of this story, is that the people have given over the battle to the Lord. They are praising the king of creation, the one that they know will save them. And how do they go into battle? The next day, they will go exactly where the Lord sends them. And they go singing. It's like they take their worship service on the road and they go down singing God's praises. And what does God do? He creates confusion among all the nations. And they end up fighting each other while God's people sing his praises. The battle indeed was the Lord's. He was the one who fought the battle. All the people did was take the first step in faith to follow him and trust, to live into courage, to live into his plan. They discerned his will. They went where, they, where he sent them. They sang his praises, and he let, they let God do the rest. Now, I don't know about you, but that kind of rubs me the wrong way. That's not the North American way. I want the plan. <laughs> I want to see what the next steps are going to be. I don't even have to know the ending, but I want the plan. And I'm wondering how many of you here and, and watching on Facebook are asking the same thing in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of climate crises all over the place, in the middle of unrest within the denomination, in the middle of anxiety. When, we, when, when will we ever get back to normal? When will we get back to our normal programming? I wonder how many of you are like me and just say, give me the plan. I just want the plan. I don't need to see the ending, but I need to know what I'm supposed to do. And I wonder if the invitation for us today in this scripture is to follow how God changes Jehoshaphat's character and leadership style to be less about being the man of action 
the leader of action and more about a listener leader, a discerning leader, a leader who says, God, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Because that's what exactly what happens in this scripture. God grows Jehoshaphat's character so that he can lead the people in a more godly way. That statement alone brings Jehoshaphat to his knees. I don't know what to do. You've made me the king and I don't know what to do. That is a very vulnerable place to be. Not only is he on his knees, what does he do? He bows down and the entire nation bows down. I don't know how much more humble and vulnerable you could get. You know, whenever we, well, I've never been in the presence of, of royalty, but maybe some of you have, but apparently we're supposed to curtsy and bow down. That's a vulnerable position. You got to hope that the king isn't going to take out his sword and say, off with her head. We're saying, I'm going to trust your goodness. I'm going to trust that you are a, a leader of character. I'm going to trust that you have my best welfare in your hand and you're going to do the right thing. And that's exactly what the people do. They stop, they humble themselves, they make themselves vulnerable, and they say, we don't know what to do, but we're going to trust you. I don't know if you noticed in this scripture, but Jehoshaphat starts out with a testimony. He starts out with what he knows about God's character. And he says, I'm going to trust that character. And you might think to yourself, What's missing in this? He doesn't say, and by the way, I got us into this mess, <laughs> right? And let's face it, aside from the pandemic, a lot of the things that we're dealing with, both globally and maybe even more locally, are things that we've either committed an offense towards or at least looked away and allowed things to go on their own. We've participated in some of the mess we're in. And yet, He's vulnerable and he bows down and he says, I'm going to lean into your character. You are worth watching. We know that you love us more than we've ever shown that we've loved you. It ends and begins with humility. Our eyes are on you. We cannot do this on our own. And God speaks twice. He says, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. And he reminds the people then, and I think he's reminding us today, the battle is not ours. Every time I talk to churches, and I've spent the last six months talking to pastors and ministry leaders, I've cried with them, I've prayed over them. There's a lot of anxiety out there in the system. And what a privilege to be able to say, the battle is not ours. God's got this. He's got you. He's the promise keeper that he always has been and always will be. And how do we know this? Because of the songs we already sang this morning. Jesus. Jesus is his mark that the battle is his. That there's not a thing that we can do but turn our eyes on Jesus and let him carry the weight of what's going on around us. I think it can feel that way right now, that we are surrounded by foes, 
I remember about halfway into the pandemic, we found out that there were murder hornets. I was like, could you not keep that to yourself? There is enough going on in my life right now. I do not need to hear about the murder hornets. But that's what it feels like, that there's so much going on that I cannot control. And that's the point when Jesus says, come, my child, battle's not yours. I love you and I love this world. God showed it through me. Do not be discouraged. Do not be afraid. Look to me. Look to the God who loves this world, who created this world, who sustains this world. I've got this. At the end of the chapter, it says, peace returned to the land. Peace returned to shalom. Everything was right with the world. Why? Because only God can bring that peace. And brothers and sisters, we live into that reality. Through Jesus Christ, that's where we find peace. Now, it's a bit of a polarity, isn't it? Because we are people of action, some of us. Some of us want the plan. Some of us are sitting here saying, how can I rest on Labor Day when there's so much that needs to be done? It's overwhelming. How are we going to deal with problems of racism and poverty, this pandemic, how it's creating a, a greater divide between the haves and the have-nots, the, the incredible uh, yeah, inability that we have to talk to each other right now about so many issues. Those of us who want to plan on Labor Day need to look to Jesus and say, we trust that you've got this. And some of us, like my murder hornet day, want to just put our head in the sand and say, I don't want to hear about anything else. I cannot, I cannot care about anything else. And Jesus says, look to me, I've got this. It's a polarity between not doing and thinking we're in control. It's a polarity between... I've got to answer the call, but I got to wait for the call. I got to know what God is asking me to do and to trust that he'll give me what I need. It's a time that we're being called to be humble and teachable and to be vulnerable and saying, we don't know what to do, but we know this is your church. This is your world. We are your people. You love this world. We're going to trust that the battle is yours. Now, the elders asked that I would preach about youth and faith formation. You're going, wait a minute. <laughs> what are you doing? You forgot that part, Leslie. But here's the thing. There's one line in there, one detail that I didn't pull out. Who gathered? It wasn't just the men and the king saying, okay, what do we got to do? It's all on our shoulders because we're the strong men. It wasn't just the men and women, the parents and the grandparents saying, oh, we've got to figure out how to deal with this. And did you notice in there, men, women, children, even the little ones stood before the Lord. Why? Because this was an important faith formational moment for the entire group. It wasn't something that we had to carve people off because they couldn't understand it or it was too much for them. How is the generations going forward going to remember what God has done if they're not there participating in that great worship, 
in the word from the Lord saying, do not be discouraged. Do not be afraid. The babies had to hear that because they're going to have to share that story later. This was a transformational moment for the entire community. It was an intergenerational moment. And it's interesting to me that out of this moment, the possibility of resilient faith happens. I wonder if sometimes in our attempt to try to protect people from what's going on, whether there are little ones, our younger ones, or even our older ones, that we leave them out of the possibility of having a formational moment of seeing how God reigns, how God has our backs, how God saves. And so I feel that there's also a call in this, an invitation for us to think about how are we helping our children process what's happening right now? How are we giving them language, not just to say, this is a terrible time. I don't like to go to school online. I don't like to not be with my friends in the normal way. How do we help them process that? And also hear the words, do not be discouraged, do not be afraid, so that they can tell their children way back in 2020, we went through a very difficult time, but we knew the Lord was with us. I think one of the calls in this is to help us come together as an intergenerational community to share the stories of faith. How have we been seeing God showing up throughout this pandemic, throughout some of the challenges that we're facing? Our kids need to hear it, but we as adults need to hear it too. Whenever I hear a story of faith, I too am encouraged. They need to see that Jesus matters even in the midst of this particular crisis, that it's not just words, but there are examples from stories of lives of all the people in the community that God has reached in and shown us that he is still loving this world, loving us. There's a book out called um, The End of Youth Ministry. And one of the reasons that, um, and I'm going to forget his name, Rice, I think, is his last name. One of the things that has been helpful to me is that parents are starting to see that youth ministry has only been kind of patting our kids on the back and saying this is a fun place to be and it's not worth the time that our kids are giving to it. That may not be happening here. This is a study throughout North America. So the, the name of the book is The End of Youth Ministry and Why Parents Don't Care. I think we're at a place where we need to rethink about how we live our lives together as a community, how we help the youngest among us see the faith of the oldest among us as being real and as being something that is aspirational. We want for all of us. The other important piece of this book that really hit me was that those of us who are parents have felt very pushed, pressured even, to um, make sure that our kids have a better life than what we did. And so Jesus only becomes a part of the equation, not the whole equation. If youth group helps our kids get a better job, we might send them to youth group. But if going and becoming uh, a, a computer whiz helps, that will take precedence over youth group. I think when we carve out age and stage groups all the time, we, we forget 
that we're not sharing the whole story with each other. And we tend to use those age and stage groups rather than have them be transformative. I don't know if that makes sense, but what I see in this story is that as the community, the Spirit helped the whole community hear the most important words. The battle is the Lord's. The Lord is with you. The Lord loves you. So as you start thinking about how you're going to engage as a community going forward, I want to commend you to thinking about why it will be important to do ministry, to worship together, to share stories together, men, women, children, and even the little ones. Because I think we're at the same pivotal moment where we're going to have to hear again, the battle is the Lord's. And this could be a generational shift that will impact the church going forward. Will you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus, that, that, that seal on the, the truth that the battle is yours. You won the battle over sin through Jesus. You continue to impact a world that is struggling under the weight of that sin through Jesus and those who are Jesus followers. May that be the case here. May we be an entire community that can say with faith and hope and surety that the battle is yours, even in the midst of some very anxious times. God, I pray a blessing over all the ministries of this congregation. I pray that you will help us to all be a people that live into your courage, live into your hope because of the work of Christ. Pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.